In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a great episode lined up for you. We will start off by talking about uh, DACA and some of the updates there because, yes, that is still a thing that we have to talk about. Um, And then we'll move on to uh, discuss a little bit of a uh, foreign policy survey, talking about a couple, um, you know, interesting things on the foreign policy front and then finally, we will have a conversation about the billionaire space race. Um, <laughs> and that's going to be really fun. So make sure to stick around for that one. Yep. I, I'm excited, dude. Um, I, uh, and it's really great to have you back, brother. Yeah, it's uh, really good to be back. I really appreciate Jess co-hosting Last Minute last week. She yeah. Yeah. It was, it was definitely much more of a debate episode than it normally <laughs> is. Uh, it, it's interesting how I, I definitely do have a lot more disagreements with my wife than I do with you. <laughs> and, and even about politics. Yeah. About politics. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I really appreciated that last week was, um, a pretty intense one for me. So it was great to be able to, um, uh, work late on my job instead of working late on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. No um, problem, buddy. Um, yeah, and really you know what was in, what also was intense last week? What? COVID. So yes, let's let's that, let's hear about them COVID numbers. That is in fact and unfortunately true. Um, so in the world, 193 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 190 million last week. So a three million case increase, or about a 1.6 percent increase in total cases week over week, and that's um, higher than we've seen. Uh, recently because worldwide the daily average case rate has been trending up since about mid-June, so for about a month now. At this point, 4.15 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 4.10 million last week, so about 50,000 new deaths this week, or about 7,000 per day. And at this point, 49 doses of vaccines have been administered per 100 people. Um, so we're still kind of seeing a pretty steady uptick in uh, vaccine distribution. Um, in the U.S. at this point, 35.2 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 34.9 million people a week ago. So that's about 300,000 new cases, which is actually higher than we've seen in recent weeks because similar to the rest of the world, we're also starting to see um, daily new case rates going up Um, For us, the upward trend started at about the beginning of July, and these upward trends are riding on the back of the Delta variant primarily, which is making up over 80% of new cases in the United States at this point. Um, So far, 626,000 people have died in the U.S., which is up from 624,000 last week. So that's about 2,000 more deaths, or about 286 deaths per day, um, which is pretty much what we've seen for the last uh, few weeks. So pretty much a steady death rate um, for the last few weeks. Um, At this point, 
you know, 49% of the population is fully vaccinated with 56% of the popula- population having one dose. Um, I, I, I thought it was really interesting last week when Nathan called out when he did the COVID update that, you know, obviously that's a percentage of the population, but the percentage of people that are able to get the vaccine is, is higher, which is encouraging. Um, but as I was thinking about that a little more, it is definitely an encouraging thing. And I think it's, it's good. It's a good thing to tell people because like the more people that get it, I think the more people are going to be comfortable getting it. But at the same time, you know, who's eligible for the vaccine is, uh, is not like relevant to the herd immunity numbers, like, like what it's going to take. So to me, that says like, that means we've got to get to an even higher percentage of people that are eligible because those that are not able to get it have to be protected. Um, so like, you know, yeah. So to me, that's like where herd immunity was, you know, potentially like 60 to 70% of the population, it's probably 80 to 90% of the eligible population in order to get to like that same. So not to be a Debbie Downer. (laughs) So, uh, Michael, uh, I do want to respond to the content of what you just said, (laughs) but I would also like to say you read those numbers a lot better than I do. Uh, (laughs) And I'm so so. glad to have you back to read the numbers because I'm, so I'm dyslexic. So like Uh, when it comes to reading really long numbers, I'm all over the place. mm. I might've sounded decent, but that's because I did a lot of editing. <laughs> to be fair, I round to three significant digits because yeah. I'm an analyst and that's what we do. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's much easier for if you do that. Cause yeah. So I, I, I appreciate you being back so that you can do the reading of COVID numbers. Also, I, I, kept, I, I keep trying to find the specific place where you... I, I don't know your system of going over the numbers, like if it's several different tabs open. Um, mm. But I could not find one place with all the information that you always there isn't. read. There isn't. Yeah, there isn't. Okay. No, no. I okay. I usually I I pull the numbers from like four or five different places um, and compile them all together. Yeah. Yeah. So as for the content of what you just said, <laughs> <laughs> um, Fox News is killing people. Yeah, that's what's that's happening. A, that's the real takeaway. Fox yeah. News is fucking killing people. Vaccine hesitancy is killing people. And that keeps getting spread around by all these right-wing outlets, especially Fox News, who are just asking questions. And ultimately, people are dying because of it. And the same standard talking point that they keep making is, well, this is about your freedom of choice and it only affects you, but it fucking doesn't. We've explained that to you time and time and time and time again. And they're not even trying to acknowledge that argument. They're not even acknowledging that. They're pretending that argument doesn't exist. But of course they've heard it because they've had people on that have made that argument. They've heard Mm -hmm. Joe Biden make that argument. They've heard Dr. Fauci make that argument. They've heard all of these people make that argument. So if they've heard that argument and they haven't responded to that argument then the only logical conclusion that you can make is that they're a bunch of hacks. They're a bunch of hacks. They're not interested in telling you the truth. They're not interested in finding the truth. Mm -hmm. They're just interested in profiting 
off of that conspiratorial thinking that arose from the Trump administration and also continuing the bullshit talking point about COVID not being a big deal, which was only there in order to cover for the ways in which the Trump administration failed. They're not interested in actually telling anybody the truth. And it pisses me off to no end. On one hand, I want to feel pissed off at, you know, my friend or, or my relative who posts some stupid shit on Facebook about how, like, oh, well, how do I know this won't have a microchip in it? Like, I want to be pissed off at them, and I am, but the, the, the people that we should be pissed the most off are the propagandists that have been selling these yeah. lies about the vaccine. Also, think about how much of a red herring argument that is. Like, it is a, it is a subtle bait-and-switch when it comes to making like when it comes to talking about the vaccine. So when you say you should get the vaccine and they respond f- like freedom of choice says that I shouldn't, right? Like it's not about the vaccine, it's about freedom of choice. It's saying what they're arguing against is not that they should get the vaccine, but that the government should force them to get the vaccine. But the government isn't forcing them to get the vaccine. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're saying is is in, rather than addressing the question of whether they should or shouldn't get the vaccine, they are making it about uh about you know arguing against the government forcing them even though they're not they're literally they're literally creating a straw man argument (laughs) like like a weak argument for themselves to believe and follow yeah which honestly maybe the government should (laughs) sure but exactly yeah maybe they should like but they're (laughs) They're not not. exactly biden has never called for that yeah and as a result that like and and so it's it's very funny to me when someone says, "Well, I'm not going to get the vaccine because freedom of choice." It's like, "Well, freedom of choice allows you to get the vaccine." Yeah. Yeah. It's like when someone says something racist and said, "Oh, well, you can't be pissed off at me because freedom of speech." No, 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 no. I can use my freedom of speech to call you a racist bastard because yeah. of what you said. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I I just God, I've been so it's, pissed it's, off it is de- like really frustrating i saw a chart today of u.s vaccine distribution and it was this inspiring skyrocketing chart like it was by day so like early on after the vaccine started to come out you just saw it spike just it was amazing vaccine distribution by day reached like you know millions of vaccines and now we're down to like tens of thousands per day because no one, because like the people that haven't taken them already aren't taking them anymore. And it's just, it's killing me figuratively yeah. and killing people literally. Yeah. So you want to move on to something more depressing? Let's do it. <laughs> so so let's th- talk about okay. DACA. Yeah. Yeah. The gift that keeps on giving. Um, so last week, a federal judge found that DACA, which is which stands for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals uh, Program, uh, which was launched by the Obama administration in 2012, was in fact uh, an illegal program. Um, and he barred the Department of Homeland Security from accepting new applications. Um, and so right now it leaves the people that are current recipients of DACA, you know, unaffected for now. Um, but it prevents, you know, 
new DACA recipients from enrolling. So it prevents them from gaining protections from deportation, and it prevents them from gaining permits in order to work in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that's an important point to make, because as much as we are going to talk about how this decision is an absolutely atrocious decision, it's a terrible t- decision, and things need to be done about it, 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 we do need to make sure that we're honest about the extent of this decision. So as it stands, there's approximately uh, 600,000 current DACA recipients. And not only does this still leave them within the program, it still gives them the option to renew. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as long as they haven't committed a crime, as long as they're fulfilling their end of the agreement uh, that is in place within DACA, they're still fine. Yeah. So that that's really important. What this yeah. critically does do, though, it makes it so that there can't be new DACA recipients. Mm-hmm. So I think we do need to give a little bit of context on the DACA fight from here on. Uh, and, and I think that that, that context will definitely help to um, provide a base for what the current discussion is about. So in 2012, uh, President Barack Obama established the DACA program. And this was after there was a failure for, the, for uh, legislation to create the program. So this was created through executive order rather than legislation. So the issue, as we've talked about on the, on the pod before, with the use of executive orders in order to enact uh, progressive change is that it can easily be overridden by the next president, which when Trump took office, that's exactly what he tried to do. There was a huge legal fight about DACA and there were several attempts in order to try to pass legislation in order to uh, instill DACA within um, within congressional law rather than just executive uh, action and each time it failed there were several different compromises that Democrats and Trump attempted to put forth and each one of them failed mm-hmm. and the fight pretty much ended in a Supreme Court decision, it was a 5-4 decision in which they ruled that uh, President Trump's attempts to end the program was, quote, arbitrary and capricious, mm-hmm. and it, it failed to adequately account for the disruption of the lives of DACA recipients and that it violated the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, and this is all according to uh, the conversation. The conversation does a pretty good layout of of all of this stuff. Yeah. If you wanna, if you wanna read further, um, so therefore, the attempt to try to take away the program was, you know, was illegal. So yeah. it was it was reinstated, meaning that people could continue to receive the program. Now, one of the interesting things about this ruling is that. The ruling seemed to require the administration to allow new recipients, but they just kind of didn't, mm. and it wasn't really further challenged. Yeah. So that leads us to the current decision. So the Biden administration, when they first took office, they reinstated uh, allowing for new recipients to apply for the program. Um, so when we were talking about the accomplishments, the executive accomplishments in the first few weeks of the Biden administration, that was one of the critical ones. Uh, Mm -hmm. When we talked about him reinstating the program, that was the critical change that he made so that uh, new recipients could continue to apply for DACA. So the judge, which is Judge Hannon, who is an appointee from George W. Bush, 
basically ruled in a similar way that the Supreme Court did, where yeah. they made the argument that the Biden administration's decision to resume accepting new DACA applications was in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. Mm -hmm. And it was because they didn't allow public notice and comment on the policy itself. So that was the argument that, that uh, Hannon made. So here's the issue with that argument. For one thing, it was Trump that had initially ended uh, new applicants' ability to apply for the program, which that in and of itself, like it wasn't, it's kind of iffy as whether or not that violated the ruling of the court. But it seems that that decision in and of itself is the one that would have violated the Administrative Procedure Act. Wait, wait, I thought the, I thought that finding that was aligned with the Supreme Court finding was his rationale for not ending the program altogether, even though his reasoning for stopping the program would have applied to the other applicants. Well, he, he did, no, he, he cited that the Biden administration had not reopened applicants following the appropriate procedures. So he was talk he was talking about the reopening of applications. Mm. Now again, he did stop short of saying, therefore we have to completely get rid of the program. Yeah. But it was using kind of the same type of rationale. Basically, you violated the procedure mm -hmm. and therefore the action itself was unlawful. Yeah. But again, if if Biden's action in bringing it back was a violation of the procedure, then why was Trump's action of taking Stopping it out it. in the first place not a mm -hmm. violation of the procedure? Which it seems that that's what the Supreme Court had ruled in the first place. Yeah. So it, it doesn't really make any sense to me. I think, I think also, like, another main reason why he found DACA to be illegal is that, um, the, that Congress had not granted to the Department of Homeland Security the authority to create DACA, right? So, like, the, the executive order is what made the program, and the Department of Homeland Security is, like, the, grant, the, the legal grant of Congress to have an executive agency, right? So, like, when an executive agency is created, Congress delegates a portion of its power to create laws and regulations by that agency, you know, to that agency. And so... The, I think one of the main things here was that uh, by enacting a program uh, by the Department of Homeland Security, by enacting this like program and administering it, um, it was it was going against the provisions of the Immigration and Nationality Act, and so Congress, you know, never granted that authority to the executive agency to execute. And so as a result, it was illegal to establish the program in the first place. But he like he wouldn't like get rid of the program because of such a large scale uh, reliance on the program, similar to the rationale for for not allowing Trump to end the program altogether as well. Yeah, no, it, it definitely seems like that is also a major part of it um, in terms of like. In terms of um an overall legal criticism of the program itself. Sure. But it seems that the rationale behind specifically saying that Biden's action in allowing for applicants to continue to apply mm -hmm. was in violation. 
So it also seems like to me that the reason why um, the the part about without congressional authorization was included into it was almost to kind of give a prescription to basically mm-hmm. say, if you want this, do it through Congress. Yeah, exactly. Which brings us probably to the main point of this whole thing is the fact that, you know, dreamers are in a state of continual uncertainty. Yeah. And that is specifically the result of these attempted stopgap measures while failing at every turn to bring a permanent solution through Congress. Yeah. And so I would say that at this point, there are two paths forward. Yeah. The first path is the one that I think they should do, which uh, there's actually been lots of talks of them doing, which is in the current infrastructure bill that they are Mm -hmm. planning on passing, there's been talks about putting... Uh, immigration into it, specifically the the reconciliation bill that was first that was recently agreed upon by congressional Democrats on the Budget Committee, which is a four point five trillion dollar spending bill. Mm-hmm. There have been talks about putting immigration specifically into uh, into that bill. So mm-hmm. the argument is because immigration does affect the economy that it does fall under the rules of budget reconciliation. So I hope that works. (laughs) Well, the concern here, though, is they might just be putting that in there so that they can pretend that they tried. Mm. And then what's probably going to happen is that the parliamentarian is going to say, nope, you can't you can't have that stuff, which will basically allow for an unelected official to have a line item veto power. Mm-hmm. over this bill and then and then you know democrats who aren't actually serious about the issues can just come back and be like well i tried but we did our best. Oh, the senate parliamentarian god he's <laughs> that guy that we could replace yeah <laughs> doing me dirty the thing is they can do that they can replace the parliamentarian when when there were parts of the bush tax cuts that the parliamentarian said did not did not fulfill precedent and therefore could not be included. You know what the GOP at the time said? They said, all right, fuck you very much. You're fired. Goodbye. Yeah. (laughs) Democrats can do that. Democrats can do that if they want to, or, Mm -hmm. or Kamala Harris. She can just override the the decision. Right. Mm. It, it, it's not like the, the, the parliamentarian does not have the veto power that a lot of corporate Democrats are pretending that it had that, that, that they mm-hmm. have. So if you actually are serious about trying to include the dream act in that infrastructure bill, go ahead, let the parliamentarian make their ruling. And if, and if uh, she doesn't say something that you like fire her ass, mm-hmm. you can do it. You have the power to do it. <laughs> so what's your other path forward if they, don't, if they decide they don't have the, the, the cojones to, to do that? <laughs> so the other path forward, which this one is iffy. The other path forward is to just have a clean dream act. Yeah. Pass it through regular order. So yeah. one of the biggest reasons why immigration bills have failed in the past 
is because of pork. Yeah. It's because they put a bunch of other stuff, oftentimes other things that are related to immigration. So, you know, Democrats will want to put in a pathway to citizenship for people that are not DACA recipients. And then Republicans will say, I'm against that. You know, we're not going to allow that. Yeah. The problem with immigration reform is comprehensive immigration reform. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then Republicans might, might put in a bit, put out a bill that like increases border security or mm-hmm. increases uh, deportations, and then Democrats or doesn't will be increase like, border security and just throws money at a fucking wall next to the border. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then Democrats will be like, uh, "No, that doesn't actually do anything to solve the problem. In fact, it makes mm-hmm. a lot of the problem worse." So, so here's what needs to happen here if this is going to be the path forward: just do a clean Dream Act. All yeah. right, just pass a clean Dream Act have it put into legislation. It doesn't have to be comprehensive. It's not going to pass through regular order if it's comprehensive. It's just not. But as it stands, 54% of Republican voters do support the DREAM Act. And there have been many senators that have supported the DREAM Act in the past, many GOP senators. Mm -hmm. If you make it a clean DREAM Act, it is possible that you might be able to get 10 Republicans to sign on. It is possible. Yeah. Now, this plan relies on the morality of Republican senators, mm. which, you know. Not the best bet. <laughs> Not the bet we've made in the past. <laughs> you know, as, as, uh, as Iron Man would say, not a great plan. <laughs> but it is a path forward. Yeah. So... The way I see it, if you actually want to get DACA in immigration law, in, 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 in law and not just executive action, yeah, you have to do one of those two things. And unless you're willing to do one of those two things, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's dead on arrival. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments. Good Actually. So, Nathan, why do we do good, actually? Well, we do good, actually, because the world sucks. Mm-hmm. The world is a shitty place most of the time. I bet that caught you by surprise, because <laughs> it's called good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I have existential dread. I have anxiety about the climate, which my therapist has said is probably not good for me. <laughs> Nor productive. Nor productive. <laughs> But one of the things that sometimes helps when it comes to looking at a world that is objectively shitty in so many ways is to try to find instances of just good, you know, just something good happening, mm-hmm. some a person doing something that is good. And if you really look really hard around you, you can see it. And you, you, you might find that good actually is everywhere. Wow. Yeah. Inspiring. Inspiring, and that's good act. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So, Nathan, what is our good actually this week? Well, our good actually is a very tasty good actually. Um, Mm. It is uh, the fact that the ice cream company, Ben & Jerry's, has decided that it will no longer sell ice cream in the occupied territories within uh, Israel, or I guess more accurately, uh, in Palestine. Wow. 
Um, specifically, that specifically, that would affect, uh, from what it looks like, they haven't officially released the details of it, but mm-hmm. it looks like that would affect the West Bank, which is currently occupied, and uh, East Jerusalem. So, look, I, I, I usually am the first person to say that most corporations are evil, but mm. Ben & Jerry's is one of those really rare ones where they actually do give their employees relatively good benefits. They're, uh, the, the cows and the chickens that they use to make their products, the animals that they use to make their products are actually raised on decent farms. Um, and they actually are very civically responsible. In fact, Ben Cohen was one of the chairmen of Bernie Sanders, was one of the chairs of Bernie Sanders' campaign. Wow. And they have repeatedly endorsed progressive causes throughout, like, throughout the course of their entire existence. Mm. And it, it's just so nice. Like, Ben & Jerry's, even as a kid, it was my favorite ice cream. I, I always loved the ice cream. And just knowing that my favorite ice cream place also does share a lot of my values and is really is really taking a stand at the oppression that happens within occupied Palestine is just it's it's it it's it feels good. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's strategies like this that is how apartheid Africa ended. Mm-hmm. You know, it's companies deciding, hey, we're not okay with the human rights violations. It's, it's unprofitable for us to continue to support you. We're pulling out. And that's ultimately what ended apartheid in Africa. So I really hope that even if this does get challenged, that this will be the first of many and that hopefully this will lead to a, uh, an Israel that is actually fair to the Palestinian people. Um, Yeah. Imagine if Ben and Jerry's could convince their the owner of Ben and Jerry's Unilever, which is an enormous multinational conglomerate that owns brands like Dove and Axe <laughs> and all that stuff, yeah. to also do that. And then that would be in a tremendous amount of pressure if they could if they could pull <laughs> yes, that it off. Would. Plus, yes it the would. Plus the thing is the other good thing about this is the uh, Israeli government is is really likes this because it denies the Palestinians ice cream. <laughs> just, <laughs> actually just the israeli government is very pissed off yeah <laughs> they're really mad they're really mad but you'd think that they would be okay with the ice cream yeah, yeah. and that's good actually so for our second segment we are going to be doing a bit of a uh a twofer on foreign policy so there's you know a couple big foreign policy uh, issues going on right now, um, and and specifically today we want to talk about what's happening in Cuba and what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, and so we'll start off by talking about Cuba and the civil uh, unrest that's happening there right now, for which is a pretty rare thing in a totalitarian dictatorship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because people just love living under uh, oppressive overlords. I think they love living, <laughs> really. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, over the last few weeks, there have been major protests that have broken out in Cuba. Um, In some ways, it's been fueled by uh, a lot of the uh, turmoil that's happened with food shortages and uh, medical shortages. Mm -hmm. Um, And also because 
Cuba is a horrifically authoritarian government that routinely oppresses its people and uh, commits human rights violations as a matter of, uh, you know, Tuesday. Normal order, yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot to talk about here. Mm-hmm. But, but here's the thing that I want to focus on. So the people within Cuba, the people that are protesting the Cuban government are absolutely in the right. 100% yeah. in the right. And and I would and I would say that the uh the the politicians in the United States that are supporting their uh the, their um their protests are also to an extent correct. But here's the thing. There's actually something quite simple actually that that the United States could do in order to help the Cuban people that would have a material impact in the lives of Cubans. And that's to lift the embargo. Yeah. So here's the thing that we should be focusing on that the, you know, a lot of people within a lot of mainstream outlets are not focusing on. And in fact, they're even making opposite arguments about this, which is the fact that the United States is actively hurting the Cuban people with their sanctions, especially when it comes to medicine in the COVID pandemic. So here's just a few examples. So, so, so let, let's, let's be clear about what the, uh, what the, the embargo actually does. All right. So the embargo makes it so that, um, so that Cuba can not purchase medical supplies from any United States company or from a foreign subsidiary of a United States company. Now, some people argue, oh, yes, but, but, but Cuba can buy from other countries. Well, perhaps, but there are a lot, there's, there's a lot of medical equipment that you can only get from the United States. Mm-hmm. For example, Cuba, and this is according to the, um, this is according to the uh, AFAM America and the Washington office in, um, in Latin America. This is a report from them. Um, Cuba cannot purchase spare parts for its U.S.-built X-ray machines. Uh, Cuba cannot purchase replacement parts for public water supply pumps and pipes, which were built by the United States. A spare part used in the manufacture of prenatal vitamin supplements uh, are only legally available from U.S. or uh, subsidiary suppliers, which means that the production of the prenatal vitamins are severely reduced. The embargo also severely increases the price that Cuba has to pay um, from uh, from other countries because, again, other countries know that Cuba can only get it from them, that Cuba can't mm. go to the United States or go to a subsidiary of the United States. They can only get it from them, so they jack the prices up. Yeah. Um, and this has heavily contributed to medical hardship within Cuba. Now, the justification of sanctions and embargoes on countries is often, well, if we make it difficult for the people to live in the country, then eventually they will turn against their government. So a lot of people are then looking at what's happening in Cuba right now and making the argument that the sanctions, the, the embargo is actually working because we were sanctioning trade, medicine, food, 
from going into the country from us or our subsidiaries. And now they're protesting. They are protesting against their authoritarian government. And on the surface, that makes sense. That's been probably the most common mainstream talking point about what's going on in Cuba right now. But here's the problem with that. As we said, there are so many legitimate hardships that people are protesting that the Cuban government frequently commits, mm -hmm. that, that, that fre they frequently contribute to. There's human rights violations, authoritarianism, crackdowns on free speech, specifically on these protests. And you know what the main line from the Cuban government has been about these protests? You're not pissed at us. You're pissed at the United States. Mm -hmm. If it weren't for the embargo, your life would be hunky-dory. It would be wonderful. It would be peachy. It enables them to scapegoat. Exactly. It allows them to scapegoat. And that is exactly what they've been doing. This yeah. entire time, the main line from the Cuban government has been, you're not pissed at us, you're pissed at them. You're pissed yeah. at the United States. And to the so, extent that that convinces people, you just drive extremism yeah. and anti-American and like anti sentiment rather than anti-government sentiment. Exactly. So it is a completely counterproductive initiative. And look, if you really... If you really want to help the Cuban people in a practical way, end the embargo. Now, there were aspects of it that were loosened under the Obama administration. For example, he made it so that uh, we could do travel between Cuba and the United States. Um, that was ended under Trump because he's an idiot. Um, and Trump also barred Americans from sending money to their relatives, which actually mm. cut, uh, cut off a major economic lifeline for many of the Cubans. Again, because he's an idiot. So, honestly, that's the only solution at this point. That's yeah. the best solution that the United States can do at this point. Lift the embargo. It's, it seems like such an obvious weakness of one of the United States' like major pressure tactics like major diplomatic tactics against uh governments that it views as hostile you know iran russia uh north korea cuba i'm not saying they all fall into the same boat but ultimately yeah. it's all about using the people as leverage against the government which relies on one very very important thing well i guess i should say re relies on two sides of one coin which is one that the government either cares about its people or two, that the people can gain enough strength against the military to overthrow it. Either way, though, you are holding the people hostage for like, you know, the actions of the government. And I don't want to say that sanctions are never a good idea. I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't really go that far by any means. I mean, but they're often a better alternative than open war. And I definitely agree with that. Absolutely. But certainly in a case like this where, to Nathan's point, not only is the Cuban government responsible for a ton of their own problems and atrocities, but at the same time, we happen to be going through a pandemic, <laughs> which is also driving an economic downturn in Cuba. And so you're having, you know, um, initially, Cuba was able to pretty effectively control COVID-19, 
Um, but recently, their cases have skyrocketed. Um, on Sunday, they reported 6,750 cases and 31 deaths. And, and many people think that you know, it's actually way higher than that. Hospitals are overwhelmed. People are dying at home without medical care. The tourism industry has obviously collapsed, which is a major engine for uh, you know, Cuba's economy at this point. Um, and on top of all that, because of the embargo and because of... Um, you know, like supply side shortages because of the embargo and the pandemic, they're facing extreme, extreme unemployment. Um, like one ex estimate from the University of Cali in Colombia estimates that prices could rise between 500 and 900 percent in the next few months. And as a result, like humans are low on money, they're not able to buy goods, the, the supply lines are all disrupted. There are long lines to buy basic things like oil and soap and chicken um, and medical supplies. And so, like as a result, we, like as a result, the Cuban people are in this double bind, mm -hmm. where not only are they under the normal pressures from an incompetent and corrupt and totalitarian government, from economic uh, sanctions imposed on their nation, but also the pressures of a pandemic that has disrupted supply lines and caused economic hardship. Yeah. So, look, we are the United States. We are citizens of the United States. The thing that we have the most impact on is what our government does. So, yeah. yes, I think it does make sense for us to, from the side, to be supporting the protests that are happening and, and also to support the protests that are happening within the United States. Yeah. You know, there, there, there were some Cuban Americans in Florida that were uh, also protesting the Cuban government. And I think that we should, you know, show support for that as well. You know, mm. we should always support protesting authoritarianism, but what's more important than that, if you actually want to help the Cuban people, and the embargo, all right? Because you will st it, it, it means that we will no longer be punishing the citizens because of the authoritarianism of their own government, which, by the way, they're the biggest victims of. So it's kind of like a, you know, both people are fucking them at the same time. Um, and it also makes it so that the Cuban government no longer has that scapegoat. So if if shit continues to be really bad in Cuba, which it will because it's an authoritarian government, then they can't point fingers at the United States. So stop collectively punishing the people for the actions of the government. It's morally wrong. It's counterproductive and it's stupid. Hmm. And speaking of making people, uh, hate the United States by the actions we're taking abroad. Let's talk about Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, I got some shit to say about this. <laughs> Big surprise. Yeah. So I want to start out by talking about an interview that happened recently with George W. Bush. Ah, Mr. W. Mr. W. So I want to talk about some of the arguments that he's making. And, and the reason why I want to use his arguments as a baseline for framing this discussion is that a lot of his arguments are the echoing of a lot of mainstream talking points mm. that are just complete horseshit. 
and are really easy to debunk if you just think for two and a half seconds. So here are some things that uh, George Bush said. So first off, he, he thinks that the, con- he say, thinks, quote, the consequences are going to be unbelievably bad, specifically talking about uh, the, 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 the pulling out of Afghanistan. So he said, um, it's unbelievable how that society has changed from the brutality of the Taliban. And all of a sudden, sadly, I'm afraid Afghan women and girls are going to suffer unspeakable harm. So that is one of the biggest mainstream talking points that they use. So the idea is what's going to happen is we're going to pull out of Af- out of Afghanistan. Taliban are going to take over and they're going to continue to oppress young women and girls within Afghanistan. So that has been the mainstream talking point. So let's let's first talk a little bit about history before we address that specific point. So let's remember um, and Michael, you, 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 you can refresh my memory on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Taliban were just like a, a ragtag group of, you know, crazy guerrilla fighters back then when they were just the Mujahideen who were mm-hmm. fighting the Russian government. I, yeah. Remind me, who, who is it that, that, that armed them, gave them the arms in order to repel the, uh, the Russians, which mm. ultimately made them turn it on their own government? Who, who was that? Who was that? I would have to put my money on America for 10000 Oh, right. It was yeah. America. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. So the reason why the Taliban have as much power as they had, the reason why they took over the government, was because we armed them. Yeah, but they were after we, the Ruskies. So yeah. <laughs> when Anything they were fighting to... the Russians, we armed a bunch of Islamic extremists, a bunch of crazies who think that who 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 do like back then they thought that women shouldn't be shouldn't be mm-hmm. educated oh, that yeah. they should yeah. basically be kept as dogs they in the were, house they were religious extremists from the beginning that was the yeah. whole thing and we armed them we gave them weapons it was a bold strategy cotton it didn't end up working out for them did not end up working out so so here's the other thing the invasion of afghanistan the, the set mission was we're there because we're going to kill Osama bin Laden. How long ago was it that we killed Osama bin Laden, Michael? Well, what is it? It's 2021, 20, and we kill him in 2011, so that's 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. Mm. We killed him 10 fucking years ago. That's like half the war ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's half the war. Half of the war has been has been fought post mission of mission accomplished (laughs) so it's ridiculous it's ridiculous and 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 here's the other thing here's the other thing there's one argument that i want to cite that um that a uh a report from the congressional research service warned about so when I read this, I just want to be clear. This is them arguing for why we should stay in Afghanistan. All right. So they said, quote, by many measures, the Taliban are in a stronger military position than at any point since 2001, though many once public metrics related to the conduct of the war have been classified or are no longer produced. So basically, right now, they're at a stronger military point than at any point that they were 
before 2001. This is an argument for why we should stay in. Wait, since 2001 or before 2001? Since 2001. Oh, so this is the strongest they've been. Yeah. So what's wrong with this argument, Michael? That we've been there the whole time since 2001? And they've only gotten stronger. Stronger? Exactly. If I were doing an analysis (laughs) of this relationship, (laughs) there would be a correlation there. Yeah. At least temporally. It's like, okay, they're no longer in control of the government, but after, but, but since, but since they were taken out of control, they have gotten stronger Mm -hmm. with us there. So the argument is we need to be there to keep them at bay. Well, we haven't been doing that. Yeah. The people that are arguing for us staying are admitting that, they str- that they're that they stronger than they were since 2001. Sure. Like, <laughs> are you yeah. fucking kidding me? Yeah. And the question there has to be about cause. Like, do you, like, are you, do you believe that the cause of the Taliban's rise to power and continued strengthening is the United States presence or not, or some or something totally unrelated. If it's unrelated, then like maybe that makes sense that we're there, and and maybe it would have been even worse. But I imagine like from the pattern that we've seen from the U.S. entering uh, like Middle Eastern nations and and overthrowing governments and whatnot is that like is that it draws a significant amount of anti-American backlash and and flocks people to. Um, you know, the organizations that are, are fighting America. Exactly. Around 200,000 civilians died in Afghanistan. That's how you make terrorists. Yeah. That's how you make more terrorists. That's how more people flock to the cause. All right? When there's a foreign invading force in a country, that is going to lead more people to want to join an extremist cause. Yeah. Like, how... How yeah. is no one thinking about that? And on top of all that, like the Trump administration committed to the Taliban that they would be out of Afghanistan in May. And yeah. so reports from inside the Biden administration um, and their intelligence have concluded that if we are still there in May without a plan to exit, we will essentially be back at war full scale with the Taliban. Yeah. That they will start renewed attacks. Um and and escalate significantly and so like um there's a bit of a rock and a hard place situation here even if it was not uh you know even if it wasn't a compelling case to leave afghanistan just the fact that we have committed to doing that and backing out would lead to a a, a, a escalation is a reason to scale back or exit yeah exactly like what they want is endless war. It's it's the military industrial complex. Afghanistan is rich in mineral wealth and defense contractors make millions off of war. It's mm-hmm. profitable. They want endless war because the military contractors that are profiting off of the Afghanistan war are the very same people that are are paying for the campaigns of all these politicians that keep supporting the war. It's got to end at some point. So let's address the the argument about 
um, about women and girls, about how uh, the Taliban is going to oppress women and girls. So here's how you know that that's a bullshit argument. So, Michael, who's our biggest ally in the Middle East? Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Saudi Arabia has a male guardianship system. You know what that means? That basically means that a Saudi woman from when she is born to when she dies is basically the property of some male guardian. Can be her father, can be her brother. When she gets married, it's her husband. Right? They control basically everything about what she does and and who she becomes. Mm-hmm. Basically, women are treated like minors throughout their entire life. Why aren't we wanting to go to war with them? I wonder. Why, 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 why don't we have uh, fucking John Bolton or George Bush out there saying, well, we have to go to war with Saudi Arabia for all the women and the girls in that country who are being oppressed. We have to go to war with them because the punishment for a married person, uh, for a married person committing adultery in Saudi Arabia is to be stoned to death. You know, and for unmarried people, don't worry. There, there are exceptions. If you're unmarried, it's only a hundred lashes with a whip. Gotcha. That's so how fucking backwards their laws are. All right. So, so you're 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 gonna sit there and tell me. You're gonna sit there and tell me that the reason why we're gonna stay there is to prevent the Taliban from oppressing women, when we're supporting Saudi Arabia. Of course, that's not what it's about. They don't give a shit about the women in that country. They give a shit about the mineral wealth and they give a shit about the military industrial complex. That's what it's about. That's what it's always been about. And the fact that George Bush is emerging from painting a bunch of pictures of flower pots or whatever the fuck he's doing to talk to, to try to give this president foreign policy advice when, when he is the war criminal who is responsible for the deaths of almost a half a million civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan is just so enraging. This motherfucker should be in prison for the shit that he's done. All right. So and he's like, Hey, but the human rights dude. Yeah. <laughs> Spare me your bullshit crocodile tears. Like you honestly, I think that in some ways Bush was significantly worse than Trump, you know, especially when it comes to foreign policy, he was so much worse than Donald Trump. All right. We cannot be taking uh, foreign policy advice from this guy. And the fact that these talking points are being mimicked by a lot of people, even in, in the democratic party is just so disheartening. All right. If Biden does manage to pull us out of Afghanistan, that will be one of the most significant achievements of his administration. And I will be so happy to come here and give him all the credit in the world. And, you know, I don't give him credit that often. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Dershowitz bag. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, as a reminder, the Dershowitz bag is when um, we have identified an argument which is so patently self-defeating that it deserves a special call out. And we made an award about it uh, that stands, of course, for uh, Dershowitz bag or the D-bag award, uh, which, which, of course, is about Alan Dershowitz's argument that because Donald Trump 
thought he should be president. He could not take any action in pursuit of being president that would be an impeachable offense. God, that one still gets me. That That, one still still gets gets me. me. That one still gets me. So, Nathan, who is our D-bag tonight? Well, our D-bag tonight is one of my favorite right-wing commentators, Candace Owens. Candace Owens, come on down. (laughs) Jeez. Oh, I'm so glad she's on our show. I can't believe, I don't think she's been on here before, and that's Uh, very surprising. She's had to have been at some point. I don't know. Well, I, well, this this argument certainly earns this her argument. A place. This argument made me laugh so hard. So, uh, keep in mind while I'm reading this, for those of you that are unfamiliar with Candace Owens, she is a right wing commentator. All right, so she's against she's against Medicare for all. She's against regulating pharmaceutical prices. She's against all of that shit. So just keep that in mind while I read this. All right. So she tweeted, "Quote." The COVID vaccine saves lives, which is why the government is making it free? Okay. So explain to me why insulin and asthma inhalers cost so much money. If the vaccines are really about government trying to save your life, why do life-saving medicines cost so much? She's so close. Awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. She really has no fucking idea. (laughs) She has no fucking idea what she just said, does she? Yeah. So I guess she's for Medicare for all now. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> or at least regulating pharmaceutical prices. Or literally doing anything to help people. It's like you achieve, literally you know, just diagnosed medicines. one of the biggest problems and you tried to use it as yeah. like a, a, a counterpoint against the COVID vaccine. Yeah. You want to know like, why the government doesn't pay for those? Because of people like you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, the COVID vaccine saves lives, which is why the government's making it free. Yes. And it's good. People love the fact that it's free. Yeah. All right? The people that are getting it, it's like it's it, it's almost as if the American healthcare system is functioning in a proper way for once. And Around meanwhile, the message yeah. <laughs> the message that she's taking from this is basically I mean, I don't even honestly. I don't even know what the message she's taking from this. It's just this is such a stupid argument. It's so self defeating. <laughs> I know like, it's amazing. She, well, she yeah, she's she's trying to say that like the government actually doesn't care about you. If they care about you, they would save your life with actual life saving drugs. And because they don't actually care about you, then the COVID vaccine is fake. It's like okay, okay, well, so let's make a system in which the government actually does care. <laughs> cares about you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know who doesn't care about you? Republicans. It's <laughs> awesome. God, she she's so dumb. I mean, I, it's, it's it kind of echoes those arguments. Sad. Like government is fundamentally dysfunctional because we can't pass laws. Why can't we pass laws? Because Republicans are constantly stonewalling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Republicans spend all of their time arguing about how the government fucks everything up. So then they get elected and they fuck everything up, and then they yeah. turn to the mess that they <laughs> cause. And say, like, see, <laughs> I told you the government fucks everything up. Yeah. It's like the government fucks everything up when you're in charge. <laughs> like, <laughs> so a deep and hearty congratulations to Candace Owens for earning our D bag award. Congratulations. So for our last segment on this show, we are going to be talking about billionaires. 
big surprise. But what might be surprising don't if you, you mean had your head in his hand billionaires? <laughs> is that these billionaires are also trying to be space cowboys. <laughs> Which is a very good Clint Eastwood movie. It is. It is very good. Uh, Donald Sutherland, too. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tommy Lee Jones. So, oh, yeah. That, what a great cast. Mm, I got to watch it? that. And I don't think any of those guys are billionaires. So I, 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 I don't think so. Either. Watch it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so earlier this week, Jeff Bezos launched himself and a couple other people into space. Um, well, technically, it was his company, Blue Origins, which he funds directly. Um, and and you might you know be curious, like, why? Why did the founder of Amazon launch himself and his brother and an 18-year-old kid and an 82-year-old woman into space? And the answer is, for no fucking reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, can, he, he took a joyride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's going on a trip on his favorite rocket dick. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, aside the fact from the fact that it looks rather phallic. But that's yeah. a spaceship for you, you know. It was this one especially looked like a dick. It was yeah. funny. Well, I, how do you have a dick measuring competition with all the other billionaires <laughs> racing in <to> space? <laughs> I mean, it's basically what this is. Yeah. Because uh, just it, a couple weeks before laugh. Richard Branson, the billionaire founder of Virgin Galactic and uh, uh, a number of other companies, uh, launched himself into maybe a space right on the edge of space um, with with his uh, company's capsule. And really what these companies are trying to do is uh, pave the way for uh, space tourism, it seems. Um an industry where you can pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to space. Now, currently tickets are like tens of millions of dollars if you can nab one. Um, but Branson's company is trying to eventually loss, launch like 400 space flights per year with each ticket costing about $250,000. Um, and though Blue Origin's business plan isn't like fully publicized, Earlier reports suggest that there'll be about $200,000 a ticket for like suborbital flights. So, you know, an orbital flight is when you get out to the point where you've like, you've reached orbit. That's equilibrium where your centrifugal force is holding you out and gravity is holding you in. So that's like so, the sweet so spot. <laughs> I got to say, it's very inspiring for me to me. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's so inspiring that this is going to lead to new opportunities mm-hmm. for a bunch of extremely wealthy people yeah, to go up into space and fuck around yep. and see the third <laughs> world, see the third world from outer space and be like, fuck you. This is what I'm spending my money on. Yep. Yep. See, that's the thing. So, so it's it, so many of these conversations that I've read have focused on like, uh, you know, in like inequality and how this is like a blatant disregard from that. And the other side of the argument is, well, you're just a techtophobe. You're just a fate of the future. You just don't, you know, you just are, don't want us to go to space all the time. Nope. Nope. That's <laughs> not nope. it. And increase things, NASA's budget. Totally exactly. a huge advocate for that. Yeah. That's the thing. Like these trips were not for a scientific purpose. Like SpaceX, yeah. Elon Musk's company does like commercial space enterprises they bring scientists to the space station they resupply it they for decades they've been doing actual work to support 
our space program and they and their technological innovations have led to increasingly lower costs and as a result you know they're actually contributing yeah things like this are not that yeah, like it's joyriding like, exactly like why would they have sent a bunch of non-scientists non-engineers to spend four minutes in suborbit yeah. and then return to earth where they yeah. had a nice ceremony and had wings tacked to their their spacesuits. Yeah. It's I mean I of course want us to increase space exploration. I think that one of the yeah. biggest things that I hate about Ronald Reagan is the fact that he basically like he basically cut the head off of the the space program. Yeah. All right? There's so much to explore. All right. Mm -hmm. I want us to continue to explore. I want us to go to the moon again. I want us to, to, to study space. I want us to go to Mars. All right. Sure. I, I want us to do all of that stuff, but I want us to do that for the purpose of science, for the purpose of progressing humanity. Humanity. Exactly. All right. Not for, not so that some fucking billionaire asshole that exploits the hell out of his workers can fly across the world putting his middle finger out to all the fucking poverty that he's not doing anything about. Yeah. And it's just, and that is just to me, like it is that fundamental, that is will that willingness to fundamentally ignore suffering and just verge on wasting millions and millions of dollars like so one billionaire paid 28 million dollars for a seat on this blue origin trip and the thing is that amount of money was so like irrelevant to that person who is anonymous that they couldn't get their schedule to accommodate it they couldn't clear a day in order to go to space so they Pass their ticket along to someone else. And when I first saw that, when I first saw that this billionaire, you know, provided his ticket to an 18-year-old student, I was like, wow, this, this is really nice. This billionaire paid $28 million and then gave it to a student to fulfill his dream of going to space. Nope. The student was son of, billionaire, uh, of, of a billionaire CEO of Somerset Capital Partners Hedge Fund. Uh, and obviously paid tens of millions of dollars, though the exact amount has not been disclosed. Um, and yeah, he's 18, but he's just a rich kid that got sent to space. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, and so, so I want to put a little bit of this in perspective because I did some math as I'm, as I want to do. <laughs> Bezos attempted to distract from the extravagance, the true extravagance of sending himself and his brother and two other folks to space by doing something really, really generous. So in, in, this, in this ceremony after landing, um, he said, quote, I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all this. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And, and he went on to provide... $200 million in, quote, courage and civility awards that he gave $100 million to Jose Andres um, and $100 million to Van Jones to give to charities and nonprofits of their choice. And that's like, so, so you know, 
one might say that, you know, if you're super jaded like I am, they might say like, hey, like that's just a distraction. That's a public relations ploy. You know, that's just him trying to, you know, get everybody to pay attention to that instead of his space trip. But even if, you know, you're that jaded, at least he did something really big and really generous, right? Wrong. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I feel like you're about to you're about to crush it again. I'm about to fucking crush you're, it. <laughs> you're about to crush me. <laughs> okay, let's do a little bit of pretty simple math. Jeff Bezos has a net worth of two hundred and five billion dollars. Okay, that's a lot of money, but it's hard to conceptualize exactly how much he gave away. Two hundred million dollars to charity in this particular event, which is zero point. 1% of his net worth. Let's put that in terms of a normal U.S. family. So in 2019, the median net worth of a U.S. family was $121,000. 0.1% of $121,000 is $118. It's the equivalent for Jeff Bezos of a normal family going out to a nice dinner. And, and, and we're supposed to believe that that is him doing something great for the world. Let's put this in a little more perspective. So, Nathan, you, you were hit the nail on the fucking head when you were like, he's flying up over, you know, in space. And w- while people are suffering here on Earth, and he could do something about it, and, he, and he's not. Yes, he could do something about it. He could, he could end a significant amount of suffering, and it's not like he would have to be, go into the poorhouse himself to do it either. So, again, $205 billion net worth. The, the Department of Housing and Urban Development estimates that it would cost $20 billion to end homelessness in the United States. Just end it. $20 billion, and it can be over. No more homelessness. 10%, that's 10%, just under, of Jeff Bezos's net worth. If we make that equivalent to the median net income in the United States, that's about $12,000. That's a lot of money. About what an average family might spend on a used car. To end homelessness in the United so, States. And instead, he flew in space for four minutes. So yeah, let's let's just... Let's let's come back to that for just a second. So, you buying a used car, to you, that is equivalent to Jeff to what Jeff Bezos could pay in order to end homelessness in the United States. That is insane. To to put into perspective, to uh, uh, to put something else into perspective. All right. Let's understand just how much a billion dollars is with a different metric. All right, this is one that I've used before, but it's been a while since I've used it, so let's use it again. All right, so let's look at specifically the difference between a million dollars and a billion dollars. All right, a million dollars, that's a lot of money. All right, it's probably, maybe if I'm lucky, what I will make in my entire lifetime, but probably not. All right, actually, almost certainly not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if I were to give you a dollar every single second 
it would take you about approximately 11 days to have a million dollars. All right? You know, it would take a little bit. 11 days, you know. You know how long it would take you to have a billion dollars? It would how take long? you about 40 years. All right? 11 days, 40 years. Yep. That is the difference between a million and a billion. And Jeff Bezos has two over $200 billion. Multiply that by 40. All right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is insane that that billionaires have that excessive wealth while a single person in the United States, while a single person in the world is homeless or in poverty. All right? As long as there is a single person who lives in poverty, we should not give a shit about protecting the wealth of billionaires. All right? We should be sparing no expense in the fight against poverty. All right? We should be taxing the fuck out of billionaires in order to fight against poverty. Yeah. And that's the thing. 10% of Jeff Bezos' net worth could end homelessness in America. But the next most wealthy family, $183 billion. They could do it with just under or just over 10% of their net worth. Or they could go and solve another problem. Yeah. Elon Musk, $161 billion. He could do it. You know, that, and that's the thing. There are plenty of these people to, if, if they just, if they literally just 10%, the world would change forever. And so with that, we'll end as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Floors. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> this is this is the third time that floors have been my, my highlights. So I mentioned last week that I had been spending a lot of time working on uh, 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 refinishing some floors with my father. Mm -hmm. And after several days of work, um, it is done. Uh, he, he put the finish on. Um, I did a lot of the sanding. And our our kitchen the the kitchen at my parents house mm -hmm. has these beautiful pine wood floors and awesome. i just have to say to anybody to anybody in the world who has ever even considered putting linoleum <laughs> on hardwood or i guess softwood <laughs> pines technically softwood yeah on softwood floors on on high quality wooden floors go die Oh my God, that's so intense. <laughs> I was, I was, I was so pissed off. Like it, it, it took so much time to scratch off all the glue. Um, and when the floors were finally done, I was just like, these are so beautiful. Why mm. did anybody cover these in laminate? Yeah. It's like, oh, well that's what glue. they did at the time. Well, there's a lot of stupid things that they did in the seventies <laughs> and that's tips for good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so great. Michael, what's what's your what's your uh, highlight? I think my highlight right now is this puppy. This uh, <laughs> we have a dog. She's the newest member of our family. Now it's just me, my wife, her, and our forty plants. And <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's been it's been a bit challenging, but not as challenging as, as I was expecting. And she's been a really fun and sweet addition. So it's been awesome. 
And so with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. 